This episode of Empire is brought to you by QuickNode. QuickNode is an end-to-end blockchain development platform that makes building Web3 apps super easy. No matter what you want to build, you can effortlessly develop any application by leveraging their elastic APIs. Go to quicknode.com, use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their feature-backed build plan. That's right. Go to quicknode.com. You'll get a free month to start playing around. You'll hear more about QuickNode later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Synthetix the liquidity layer for DeFi derivatives. With Synthetix V3, any protocol can now tap into Synthetix liquidity to bootstrap derivatives markets. You'll hear more about Synthetix later in the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. Uh, you got Santi and you got Kane. Kane, welcome to the show. Are we are we still calling you the semi-benevolent dictator or uh, or do we have a new title for 2023? Uh, I think on Twitter, I'm the head of decentralized finance. Um, someone, someone wrote an article about me and put that in. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll take that. I haven't yet been rolled up by, by, uh, you know, some international, uh, group of, uh, of, you know, three letter agencies yet. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe no one, no one takes it seriously. Yeah. The CEO of Ethereum, huh? Yeah, exactly. Nice. Someone's got to do it. Yeah, exactly. Hey, I'm just going to awesome, go straight man. for the jugular because that's what people are doing today. Yeah. Are, is your alt yeah. deed in Spartan? You know what's so funny is no, right? Um, and and like <laughs> I think you know, like it is funny because there was a long time where people uh, in Discord, especially, were like, "This has to be a Zalt. Like it just has <laughs> to be. Like it would just be so good." And like there's a, it's funny because like for a long time I wished that it were, but I don't have the capacity to run an alt. I tried to run an alt for like a month, and I was like, "This." Yeah. Just, yeah, it just it. takes a lot I of mental I don't know how people do it. Like, it, it all, I, also probably has like multiple personality disorder at some point. It's like actors like snapping out of like roles. Like, he, you Lakers know, it was of. fun. It was fun because I got to say shit to people that like sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was like, you guys are fucked. What's wrong with you? But then I'd be like, oh, I probably should be a little bit kinder than that. But, um, yeah. And then I was just like, look, this is too hard. I can't maintain this. Yeah. I just can't maintain it. So I, I had to, I had to hang it up. Okay. So I'll take that. So, so, I mean, it's great having you on because you have probably, you've been around uh, in the space. And as we think about everything that's going on recently, um, you know, DeFi has been in a bear market. Talk about DJ Spartan. He loves to tweet this chart of DeFi versus ETH and how it's like Make, just Maker been, versus ETH or whatever. Exactly. Right? He loves Maker. <laughs> but just DeFi like as a composite has just been really in a brutal trend even before Terra, even before like three hours, all that stuff. And now it feels like maybe, you know, with all the bank runs happening, with the Binance stuff happening, centralizing ex- exchanges kind of taking a big hit, it sort of does pose the question. And maybe this is central theme of the episode is so what does that mean for DeFi? Like, does, and Synthetics has had some recent action, um, and historically, Synthetics has sort of been kind of the leading the charge of the next run. Um, and so I'm kind of curious to get your thoughts on everything that's going on. Yeah, I think just on that point of like synthetics leading the charge, right? Like, you know, DeFi summer, it was compound launching a token, right? Um, and, you know, leveraging yield farming, right? Uh, to really, you know, get like attention, right? Um, and both of those things were, you know, kind of synthetics playbook, you know, things, right? Like, you know, I mean, the holding off and launching a token later, I think that was something Mm -hmm. that I think everyone thought Compound would do, but, um, you know, juicing up 
the TBL because um, that was the game at the time, right? Juicing up TBL was the name of the game, and Compound just took that that you know synthetics level playbook and said, okay, let's throw a bunch of tokens at this and see what happens, right? Um, and you know it was incredibly effective, um, and that was kind of what launched DeFi Summer, right? Um, but you know for all of 2019, um, and it's funny because like I literally compressed 2019 and, and 2020 um, about a month ago, and I was on a podcast like I literally forgot the DeFi Summer happened in 2020. It seemed like it, it was all very quick, but, you know, synthetics, uh, launched yield farming and, you know, the inflationary supply and all this stuff in 20, early 2019, like March, April, 2019. Um, so it really did take a year. Right. Um, so then the question of like, okay, well, you know, what was it that allowed this kind of DeFi resurgence? And I, I think, you know, it was all of those games. It was all of those, like, you know, Kind of early PVP games that people, you know, got excited about. And there was something interesting to pay attention to again. And it was within the context of a series of projects that were doing things that were actually functional. You know, compound, you could borrow stuff. Lend slash Ave, you could, you could borrow stuff. Maker, Dai was working, you know, like it was scaling up. Like we hadn't yet hit any scaling walls. Like all of this stuff was actually working, but that wasn't enough to excite people. You also needed the like crazy, you know, uh, kind of incentive schemes to, to get people excited. I would love to get like your th perspective on like how far synthetics has come over the years and what has perhaps been some of the challenges that haven't been possible or weren't able to be solved maybe until recently. Um, if there are any, I think in short, all of the challenges were not possible. Right. And we're not even sure if they're possible yet. Like, that's the fun thing about synthetics, right? Is that, like, it is very much this, like, experimental concept, uh, uh, doing something that is incredibly hard, right? And, you know, every time we get close to finding out that some component is working, then we just push the envelope further. It's like, well, okay, let's try this, right? Um, and I think that is one reason why synthetics is kind of perpetually interesting, right? Even if it's not perpetually working or perpetually, you know, generating revenue or doing whatever it's doing, like it is always interesting because, you know, it's a set of really hard problems that we keep solving. And the other thing I think is that we rope other people into helping us solve them, right? Like you made that point about, um, you know, uh, yield farming, like we, we roped Uniswap into that. Right. Like we said, Hey, Uniswap's here and we need liquidity as an on-ramp. Like rather than trying to do it ourselves, like let's bring Uniswap in. And, you know, we were the largest, uh, you know, um, pool in Uniswap for like nine months. Right. Mm -hmm. Now that obviously paid off for a lot of people with the Uniswap airdrop. Um, you know, but, uh, but things like that where, you know, we take Uniswap or Chainlink or like some other protocol and say like, okay, let's work out a way to help, you know, to bring that thing and to help us solve this problem. And so, you know, it started off with like a really simple thing of we just want tokens that represent things that can't be on Ethereum. So Bitcoin, right? Gold, silver, oil, you know, FX currencies and USD is included in that, right? Like that's the, that's the primary one. Like USD is not a blockchain concept, right? USD is a real world concept and we've tried all kinds of ways to bring USD onto the blockchain. That was the first synthetics problem, you know, even before it was synthetics when it was Haven. So all these problems have been like, okay, how do we, how do we do this? So it was like, all right, let's tokenize real world assets. Let's find a way to represent them on blockchain, um, on Ethereum specifically. Um, then let's let people exchange those tokens, right? And like find a way to do that, right? And, and, you know, then 
let's find a way for people to get leverage. Let's find a, a way for people to, you know, get margin trade. Let's find a way to like do a potential future. So it's always like kind of pushing the envelope, um, you know, and as you push further and things get bigger, you find cracks in the, the old system and you're like, oh, right. Okay. Actually, that doesn't work at scale. Like we didn't get to the and like same thing as maker, right? Like die looked amazing. The first hundred million dot, right? It's like this thing's going to scale to a trillion dollars, right? Then you're like, yeah. oh, actually, no, there's a problem here. Like it's mm-hmm. not that capacity of deep lending, et cetera. And so, you know, this is what all of DeFi is about. Just keep, you know, pushing, pushing, pushing. You find a new problem and you're like, okay. And, you know, it's one of the reasons why I guess, um, synthetics also, uh, has struggled at times because when you're in the midst of the, the solution side of one of these hard problems, it can look like it just doesn't work. Yeah. Right. And it's really easy if you're a pessimistic person to be like, well, this thing's dumb. It's never going to work. Right. The amount of people who said like, you know, uh, being the counterparty to all trades will never work. Right. And like it didn't when you looked at it back then, like it actually didn't work. You could see that fundamentally it didn't work, but conceptually did it not work. Right. And that's the thing that people, you know, kind of pessimistically assume, but actually conceptually it does work when you have perpetual futures and you have, you know, these funding rate mechanisms that kind of keep the skew in line and all of this stuff. And so suddenly we're now two years down the road. It's like, actually, maybe it does work. Mm-hmm. Shit, that would be crazy if that works. Yeah, that's such a good point. I think you guys were critical in, in key pieces, right? When you think about like synthetic assets, you need a really good Oracle. And I guess you were, you know, you're probably one of the, the big, first. more important, we the, the more important we the protocols first, yeah. for, for adopting Chainlink mm-hmm. and the success that they've had. Then you realize, well, it's really expensive when you're doing a lot of frequent transactions in an L1 environment. So that, I guess, push you to then think about optimism or an L2 solution like optimism. Mm-hmm. Um, I wonder, like, from your perspective, I guess you do have a really good vantage point on the infrastructure deficit or the state of the infrastructure of Ethereum and other L1s, which I know you've been really kind of critical on or just have stayed away from from yeah. them. Um, and you've been pretty vocal on that. Um, what are What's your latest kind of thinking on where is Ethereum today you know, and the more concrete answer is people would look at DeFi and say, okay, great. You built all this stuff, but there's like 10 users. Like, when are we going to actually see millions of users? And so I'm curious, when do you think that's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead too too far into the conversation because I know, you know, we're going to talk about uh, centralized, you know, insanity um, later. So I'll leave, I'll park that for now, right? Uh, but I think, you know, at a fundamental level um ethereum is the original you know rolling experiment right it's like hey you know i think you know this vitalik in, in you know whatever 2013 um you know i think we can uh build a thing that can execute you know smart contracts on chain right and the amount of people who said like absolutely no you can't right and you certainly and certainly you can't do it that way and certainly you know this and certainly that and you know there's it's weird, right? How many people are in crypto who are super pessimistic, right? And, and I think it's incentives. The incentive to be pessimistic once you're in crypto and, and you've got something that's working, you're a Bitcoin maxi and you're sitting there on your path of digital gold. It's really easy to be like, no, nothing will work. You're all dumb. And like, look at this pile of digital gold. Everyone focus on that thing, right? That's my thing that I'm, I'm excited about. Um, but. It, you know, when you're, when you're a pessimist and you're just trying to, you know, shoot holes in, in things, um, you're right most of the time because most things are really hard in crypto and, and, you know, most things are hard in startups and most things are hard in, in life and a lot of things fail. 
And so you're going to be right, but you're going to miss out on the fun of, you know, hey, can this thing work and how do I get it and solve it? And so when you look at like Ethereum, Ethereum started off and, you know, I remember sitting there in 2017 in Mexico and Vitalik was like, proof of stake, like, you know, like the merge, like the, it was just like, we're almost there, guys, six months and we're going to nail this, right? And obviously we all know that that turned out to not be the case. And that's not a criticism of anyone. That's just the world, right? Like the world's fucking hard. And so when you set up to do really hard things, it takes a long time, right? And so, you know, Ethereum scaling has taken way longer than we expected. And, you know, I've said this many times that the fact that it took longer left a window of opportunity. You know, we can't pick on some level when the cycles happen, right? Um, and if a cycle starts to, to ramp up before you're ready, you're, it's going to be bad for everyone. It's going to be a bad time for everyone, right? Because the, the market will fill the gap. Right. So either you can turn up and be like, well, headway, bullshit, whatever, it's going to be fine. Or you can be like, actually, we've still got really hard problems that we don't know how to solve because you're being honest about the problem. And someone else turns up and says, hey, like I've got a computer over here that does 30,000 TPS. Right. Like, and it's decentralized. Don't look over, you know, whatever. Right. Like, and that person's going to win on some level. Right. Because they're selling something that's really easy to, to, you know, kind of get for the average person who's turning up and they're like, no, no, my thing's going to win. The computer in the back room is going to win, right? This Ethereum thing is nonsense. It's not going to work. Um, and so I think that that has been, you know, an issue for Ethereum a couple of times and it's been an issue for DeFi and for synthetics that like we weren't quite ready to scale up when the market started, you know, ripping up and people absent a genuine solution will look for a, you know, shitty, not real solution because they want something. They want an answer. Mm -hmm. Ken, do you think that's just a, a, what ends up happening in all these crypto cycles though is like, Bear market, Ethereum wins, Ethereum things get built, ZK, EVM, L2, those kind of things get built in, in the in the bear market. Bull market happens. Value gets kind of attracted to those things in the beginning of a bull market. But in the latter half of a bull market, you get things like alt L1s and like other ideas. And like, that's the sexy thing that gets the attention. And then we have to get to the other side of the bowl to realize that it was Ethereum all along. Or do you think that like, or do you think that changes in future cycles? I, I think there have been a couple of reasons why the Alta ones, you know, if you look at the original Alta one thesis was like EOS, right? You know, and like we kind of, we left, we left that door open. Like the amount of people that I had in like 2017, 2018 were like, you cannot believe how good EOS is. It is so amazing. And it's like, I mean, I mean, I still remember you guys were like at some point. We're looking we, to like partner with them. We were looking and going on there because we're like, everyone's saying to us, this thing's amazing. Like maybe we're the idiots, right? Like we had so many people that were like, no, EOS, they're going to, I was like, oh, okay. So we spent six months, you know, uh, like, um, JJ who, who ran engineering mm -hmm. spent six months looking into it. And his conclusion was this fucking nonsense. And this is a guy who'd come from MongoDB and, you know, was the director of engineering there. And he's like, this, there's no engineers here. There's no structure. There's no, they don't like, this is like Ethereum's bad. Don't get me wrong. Ethereum's bad, but this is nonsense, right? Like, and it was like all these people who were talking about how he also was going to be the, this amazing thing either had no credibility because they hadn't looked into what it was or how it worked or how it was structured or whatever, but they were just talking their own bags, basically. I mean, so like maybe let's put a pause on all this stuff. I'm just kind of curious to get your perspective. How does a company like Block One, the guys behind EOS, manage to raise $4 billion and like yeah. from like really good investors for like a, this, this was going on for like a year. And like, 
how do they pull it off? I mean, to be fair, you guys probably marked the top of the ICO boom. Like you, you raised up, what was it? 200 30, and change, 30. 260 million? No, 30 million. No, no, 30 million. 30 million. Sorry. Off by yeah, an order of yeah, magnitude. Yeah. 30 yeah, million, but it was like the fastest million. sale, which was yeah. a lot. But like, how does EOS like raise this amount of money and no one ever like dig deep like you guys did? Well, there's, there's two schools of thought on that, right? Like one is they actually did. They structured their uh, sale in a way that it was, you know, an ongoing year long thing, right? Um, and they were able to just recycle funds back into it and just buy more and more of that token, which meant that they controlled so much of the supply and a whole bunch of like civil wallets. And, you know, that theory has been around for a while. I don't know if you'll ever be able to disprove or prove that they, that it was legit, but crypto being crypto, it wouldn't even surprise me if someone came out and said, actually, it was all legit. And we've got all the people and we just got like a document that says, here's all the people. And, you know, this is how the money got in. Like, it wouldn't surprise me. It would not surprise me if it was totally illegitimate and it was just recycled funds and they really raised like 500 mil or whatever. Um, but, you know, towards the end of the ICO boom in, in early 2018, you know, I mean, what, Telegram raised 2 billion or something? Like, let's, and I say this a lot. Right. People are like, oh, two billion. Like, that's not that big of a deal because people, I think, actually get confused between raising two billion dollars or raising four billion dollars and a four billion dollar valuation. Right. Like those things are not the same thing. If you raised four billion dollars, your valuation is like infinity. Right. Like, what, <laughs> like it's, it's like nonsense. Like no one's ever raised four billion dollars in a round effort. Like it could be the largest raise in history. I don't know. Like, I just can't imagine you know, outside of like some huge fund, right? Like someone for an actual thing that people are going to do raising $4 billion, it's, it's lunacy, right? Yeah. Um, and so, so like, you know, why does no one look at this stuff? Because of FOMO, you know, I mean, mm -hmm. realistically, if you experiment with the mechanism for people to put money in and there's FOMO, I remember being in like St. Moritz in 2018 and everyone, we're in this car and we're like coming back from like a dinner or whatever. And all of these VCs were just frothing over Telegram. And I remember sitting next to this guy and I was like, no, like, guys, like, what are you talking about? Like, even if this is amazing, how are you going to put $2 billion into it and have this make sense? Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's a different story, but obviously, you know, a lot of stuff's happening. <laughs> I mean, but, um, we've seen yeah. this movie play out before. Oh, again and yeah. again. Ken, can I, can again I get in again. though, just one, one more point on these, like, going back to what we were talking about earlier with the kind of like alternative ecosystems outside of ETH? Cause I think it's, yeah unfair to say that the things happening today are like EOS. And I know what you're saying, but I do think like it's unfair to compare something like a, I don't know, the Cosmos ecosystem or Solana to an EOS. hundred percent. It's and, 10 times better. Yeah. yeah so I'm that's curious. That's why I said like that was the original. Right, right, right. I'm cases, curious to just right? get your view on other ecosystems, like in your mental model for this world and in crypto, like, is there anything in these other ecosystems and is there anything of interest there? Or you're like, look, the, the world will be built on ETH and that is it. Look, you know, there's a whole uh, ecosystem of, you know, people, you know, I mean, not anymore, but like, you know, if you look at even like phone OSs, right? Like Windows Phone, like, you know, Microsoft was able to like pump enough money into that, that like people came and turned up and they're like, we're building exclusively for Windows Phone or, you know, whatever. So like, there's always going to be activity there. The question is like, is it sustainable? Is it the best activity? Are the best people doing it? Like, does that make sense? Right. Um, and so, of course, the Altel ones have gotten much better. No question. Like EOS was a dumpster fire and like, you know, Solana, like, you know, they've got challenges or whatever. They're making trade-offs that I don't agree with, but like, it's a real thing. They've got 
engineers there. So, so, you know, this is not to say that like, you know, everything is EOS all over again. It's, it's, you know, um, it's definitely better than that. But the reality is that by ETH building out in the open the way that it did, by being honest about the challenges, by being honest about, you know, and like I said, the ETH community being honest about like, you know, the issues that, um, remain to be solved. Right. It was so easy for someone to turn up and be like, Oh, we don't have any issues remaining to be solved. We actually solved them last week. So, you know, dump a bunch of money into us because we're about to just, you know, run past Ethereum. And Ethereum's kind of like, uh, and you know, there's, there is this thing. If you go on crypto Twitter, especially in the bull market where like Ethereum people are losing their minds. They're like, why are we being honest with people? Like, how can you compete when you're being honest? And it's like, you can, you just compete in the long term. And it's just one cycle and you just let it go. You know, so when the guy's like, no, no, like we solved that technical problem last week and here's how we solved it. Um, and just, you know, mm-hmm. look over there, right? Like it can be frustrating, but you just have to accept that that's just the market. The market's going to do what it's going to do. Yeah. So I want to transition a little bit because, you know, other than building synthetics, you're also a very prolific investor, uh, you know, and certainly things that you want to be see built. So like, what is it that you're most excited about um, in crypto right now? Like things that perhaps haven't worked, but will work or they thematically you're really excited about that you think are really going to take off in the next cycle? I think this is the, the, the kind of point of all of that stuff would have sort of leading up to is that like Ethereum is basically there now, right? Like at least to the, to the extent that we can see, like we've gotten, we have actually solved the problems, right? Like even proof of stake, there was a long time where it was like, oh, proof of stake is not a real thing. It's never going to happen, right? Even though there were other proof of stake you know, systems that existed, like the idea of Ethereum transitioning from proof of work to proof of stake, people were just like, no, it can't happen, right? Easy to sit there and be a pessimist and shoot holes in that, but the reality is that it has happened. And, you know, then it's like, okay, we'll move on. Like the merge is never going to happen. And now it's like, we'll throw holes and never going to, you know, the next thing is never going to happen, but it inevitably does. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me like Ethereum with the current setup that it has with multi-client teams with, you know, really good incentives to work hard, like it's working better than it ever has. Like the decentralized coordination component of Ethereum is 10 times better than it was in 2017. It just is. Like it's just, you know, empirically obvious, right? And so now the question is, okay, like, can we keep this momentum as the Ethereum ecosystem into the inevitable next bull market? And my sense is yes. And so like, you know, to go back to your question, like, what's the difference? You know, do we always end up with this like frothy nonsense at the top? Yes, there will absolutely be that. But if you give people a reason to go to BSC because the transactions are a thousand times cheaper, right? People will do it, right? If you go, you know, if you give people a reason to go somewhere else in the middle of a bull market, they will. I think we are the closest we've ever been to not giving people a reason to leave Ethereum this cycle. I think there will be, you know, really, you know, there's always, there's always a reason. One of the reasons is that if you can go and buy a thing for one cent and pump it to, you know, a dollar, right? Like that's a reason. So that reason will never go away. So there will always be frothy nonsense, but the technical underlying architectural reasons and like user facing reasons, I think we're close to removing that reason for people to go somewhere else. And what about the, um, can we, were you, uh, were you in Denver at ETH Denver or did you? No, I wasn't. No, I haven't been traveling much. I talked to Santi about this the other day, but a lot of the, um, this, the discussion in crypto today is very hardcore infrastructure still. So if you looked at like all the folks in Denver, it was, um, it's like very little of the zeitgeist is dedicated to things that people want to use. It was like ZK EVMs and like 
wallet infrastructure and, and stuff like that, staking, different staking mechanisms. When does that, when does that shift over to things that people want to use? Or are we, are we multiple cycles away from that? No, I think we've already got the stuff that people want to use. People want to use derivatives. They want to trade. Like yeah. if we look at the main use case of crypto, it's, you know, people want to trade crypto, right? Like that's the main use case. The, the other use cases I think will kind of emerge out of that when all, when that's solved, right? But we can genuinely do that in a centralized way. And that's when DeFi will win, right? And that, you know, again, not to like jump ahead to the conversation, but I think that's where we're close to doing. Now, why, or why is everyone focused on infrastructure? Because all of a sudden infrastructure is working for the first fucking time. And so people are like, yeah. oh, wow, this is a thing that actually, you know, like before they were like, oh, maybe we shouldn't work on infrastructure because, you know, uh, some guy with 500,000 followers says, you know, Ethereum's dead and, you know, infrastructure is pointless, right? And now people are like, oh, wait a second, like infrastructure is a way, you know, there's still unsolved problems here mm -hmm. that we can, that we can solve. And there are, but the, the gap is getting smaller, I think, right? You know, we've got an ecosystem of L2s now. We've got, you know, there's stuff that's kind of, you know, filling those gaps that used to exist within the Ethereum ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And so it will get harder, but there's no question that like wallet, there's a whole bunch of unsolved problems still. Yeah. Like on that point that you could argue that like, we're now in an infrastructure surplus point where like, yeah. you know, like transactions are now one super cheap on Ethereum. And for, there was a time where we complained that it cost the car and a half to like do one transaction. Uh, and like L2 fee, like, like Arbitrum Optimism combined, like, you could argue there's so much capacity. The question is like, you know, again, like what is it going to take to onboard millions and millions of users? I know it's like a loaded question because you can go in so many directions, but like, what is the first thing that like comes to mind as like the main challenge that we could be focused on as a community? I, you know, it's, it's an interesting question because even still, you know, I say we have working L2s, right? We don't really have working L2s. Now I'm going to put my honesty hat on, right? And say like, we don't, and you know, that's going to leave the door open for some fucking idiot to waltz in, I guarantee you, in, you know, 2024 and be like, I've got a working L2. It, the sequencer's decentralized. And like fraud and that, and sequencer. Like, yeah. yeah, like they're, yeah. like, they're going to just say like, we've got all the problems. They're all solved in the back room. You can't go back there right now, but like, trust me, they're all solved. And you know, like- you Aren't got, you just you know, describing sidechains here, sir? Yeah, like, oh, sorry. Yes, but they will read. They'll read. <laughs> right. Sidechains will. I pro like listen. Like I promise you right now. I'm gonna mute Sidechains will re will reinvent themselves as like some other thing. There'll be some memeable name that they've like got that's like slightly better than L2s, and they'll be raising a hundred million fucking dollars. I promise you, this will happen in 2024. Um, and so you know, like to to go back, you know, we we don't have decentralized sequencers yet, right? That's going to be a hard problem to solve. Right. Um, we don't have, you know, uh, fault proofs, right? Like, or we do, but they're, you know, like there's still, you know, issues with them or whatever. Um, we don't even have an optimized data availability layer in L1 to the L2s, right? Like that's still, you know, like this, there's still work to happen there, right? Um, you know, the ZIPs, uh, coming that will make that even better, right? Um, you know, there's fundamental architectural changes that need to happen in the L2. So like, you know, we say we've got working L2s, but we don't really. We have significant scaling still left in the current L2s that we're working on. Um, and yet I would say if like, you know, 5 million people turned up, um, you know, in a month's time, we would accommodate them so much more effectively than we did last cycle. 
All right, quick break from the show. There is this kind of overused cliche saying in crypto, but it's true. Bear markets are building and everyone tells you that and everyone knows it. What people don't know is that if you're building apps in crypto and building apps in Web3 without using QuickNode, you are building on hard mode. So QuickNode is, is this amazing blockchain development platform. It reduces costs, streamlines the time to market for your app, and it offers consistent performance at scale. For folks that have built apps, you will know that there are a couple key points here. One, QuickNode offers unlimited endpoints across 18 different chains and 35 different networks. They have response times that are two and a half times faster than any of their competitors, 99.99% uptime and a dedicated 24-7 customer support team. If you've been listening to Empire for a while, you might know that I am no gigabrain developer, but I do know a lot of devs and a lot of great product teams at other places. So when I see Coinbase and Twitter and Adobe and OpenSea and Dune Analytics all leveraging and trusting QuickNode to power their business, that's when we get excited and that's when we want to partner with them. They're the best solution for any leading crypto and Web3 company that is seeking an end-to-end blockchain development platform right out of the box. So my message to you, get off hard mode, let QuickNode handle the blockchain infrastructure, let QuickNode handle the security let QuickNote handle the performance while you focus on building beautiful products for your users. Visit quicknote.com, super easy. You can use code EMPIRE. You'll get a free month on their build plan. So don't forget to use code EMPIRE. Santi and I got to get credit for this one so they know that we sent you and you will get a first month free. Hope you guys enjoy it. All right, folks, it is time to talk about one of my and a lot of your favorite DeFi protocols, Synthetics. Synthetics has been pushing the limit in DeFi innovation since 2017 and has just started its most exciting transition yet with Synthetics V3. With Synthetics V3, any protocol can now tap into Synthetics liquidity to bootstrap derivatives markets. The transition has already started with Synthetics Perps. Synthetics Perps taps into Synthetics's liquidity layer and is a new primitive that developers can leverage to launch DeFi derivatives. The Perps product has been going incredibly well so far. Hopefully you've seen it. It's had some great traction hitting 500 million in daily volume this March. We know that liquidity rules DeFi and Synthetics is becoming the modular liquidity layer for DeFi derivatives. As a trader, you can trade Synthetics Perps with low fees in over 20 different markets at Quenta.io, Decentrix.com, and Polynomial.fi. And this opportunity set keeps growing with 10 new partners in the pipeline ready to launch integrations on top of Synthetics, including front ends, structured products, and institutional offerings. The team gave me a sneak peek of all this stuff. It's really cool. Would really recommend you check out Synthetics.io forward slash Perps to learn more. And if you're looking to build on Synthetics, hop into their Discord server, reach out to the team directly. Make sure to tell them that Empire and Santi and Yano sent you. Again, synthetics.io forward slash perps. You can also hop into the Discord server and reach out to the team directly. Transitioning a little bit into kind of what needs to be built. The first obvious thing is there's been a lot of wreckage in the centralized world. Partially because, not because it wasn't a good business model, just because of terrible mismanagement. Like it's like people that are have no experience in finance or risk management just kind of blew something that was actually pretty good. Do you think that all of that eventually transitions into a decentralized context now that we have all this infrastructure? Yeah. So, you know, it comes back to, in my mind, a, a very simple thing, right? The market will solve the problem. 
So the market will solve a problem. It will solve it in the most kind of efficient way that it can, right? Like that's, that's what markets do, right? Um, and so if the most efficient way is to just centralize everything, right? And take all of the benefits of the technology and remove them, right? Um, then the market will do that. And every single time we've gotten into a bull market, we've been forced into that because we haven't had the decentralized technology. We've had a little bit. And so people, you know, will kind of play in the decentralized land a little bit, right? But the, the primary demand in a bull market is trading crypto. That's mm -hmm. just, that's where the demand is going to come from, right? And so if you can't trade crypto in a decentralized fashion, um, like you couldn't in 2017, so 0% of, you know, activity happened. I mean, that's not like either Delta or whatever, like yeah. 0.001% right, of, of, you know, uh, transactions happened on decentralized exchanges, right? I saw mm -hmm. a chart uh, a couple days ago that says it's like 15% or 20% or something like that of uh, exchange activities happening on decentralized exchanges now. I think Hayden posted about, mm -hmm. you know, Uniswap and, and a bunch of, like, that's a, that's crazy. Like, there were people that said that it will never get above one percent. It just isn't even possible that you can compete, right? Um, and so I do think that we are going to see, people are going to want to trade crypto. Again, we'll have a mass influx of people who want to trade crypto. And we are in a position now where the way that they typically want to trade crypto over time is like leverage and margin, et cetera. They want, you know, like BitMEX invented, mm -hmm. you know, the perpetual future. And that's the thing that is the most efficient way to, you know, express your desire to trade crypto. I don't think that's going to change in the near term. Um, and therefore, we need decentralized versions of that. We weren't even close, you know, uh, in 2020, right? Mm -hmm. No one was even close. Yeah. We're pretty close now. Um, it feels like we're pretty close to that. I think by the time there's a lot of demand, we'll be very close. And the key thing is that you need to have multiple solutions for something, right? Too many times in crypto, especially in centralized finance, we've only had like one, maybe two options. And I think when you have one or two options in, in a decentralized solution, and then like 50 options that are centralized, it's really hard to compete, even if the two are, are quite good. Um, you know, so that's that's one of the things you need, like a flourishing ecosystem of options for people to to use. Well, speaking of options, it does feel like that is uh, dwindling down in the centralized land. There's certainly more regulation coming in the U.S. Like on ramps, liquidity is really dried up. You could argue potentially Coinbase is a viable business could be impaired. Um, how does that? What does that mean for? crypto as well, like especially decentralized finance? So I think it means probably a couple of things. One, you know, the regulatory arbitrage payoff increases, right? So, you know, finding some jurisdiction, you know, some banana republic or something that you can, you know, turn up and, and buy out the entire government and, and set up your crypto, you know, paradise of centralization there, right? Um, that payoff will, will be much higher um, than it was even last cycle, right? Because... The, the delta between, you know, Coinbase or Kraken or like a, a, you know, an exchange that's trying to do the right thing that's, you know, in a, in a, you know, same ish jurisdiction, right? And, you know, someplace out, you know, in the asteroids somewhere, right? You know, out in, um, uh, in space is, is going to be significant, right? Cause they're just going to be able to do things that those other exchanges won't be able to do, right? They're going to be really, you know, fighting with both hands, so I find their back. Um, but we have an alternative, which is decentralized finance, right? Mm -hmm. Which is its own version of regulatory arbitrage right now. Um, and so the, the, you know, the delta of using a decentralized exchange that can give you everything you want as a user, 
versus using you know centralized exchange is going to compress in a way that it, it never has right and so i think we could actually see like a viable you know ecosystem of uh of exchanges decentralized exchanges yeah i think uh all too many times like there's some regulatory action then it gets crypto gets bundled all together right and there's not enough nuance I do think that there's understanding at the working group level of these agencies, but sometimes the press mainstream just sort of like looks at it. It's like all of it's bad, you know, and unfortunately that's kind of the state we're in so early. Um, but like if a regulator, regulator approaches, you tries to understand what synthetics does, say the CFTC or whatever. And like, if you look at like the issues that they're bringing up against some of these centralized players, you could argue, and I'm curious if you agree with this, that like, why wouldn't you want to have a totally transparent system that the counterparty risk is very well understood? The like uh, the level of permissions that you give a smart contract or whatever counterparty are very well defined. And so you don't really necessarily have these issues that have existed in traditional finance for so long, which are largely a result of there's no transparency. Just people don't. There's just sort of this like trust us, I promise, but don't look at the charts. Just today, for instance, as an anecdote, you can't like CNBC, you can't now look at credit default swaps for most banks. So crazy is that? So you try to look at the CDS for Bank of America, no longer there, folks. Turn away, go elsewhere, go for a jog. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so anyways, back to the serious question. Do you think that we'll ever get to a state where like a regulator appreciates that? Do you think that they care? I'm just trying to understand how perhaps a the end game of DeFi. Can, can it, can it can yeah. DeFi like work its way into the traditional system, which is just a clusterfuck? So I've thought about this a lot and, you know, I've talked to some other uh, founders of, of, you know, DeFi projects and, and you kind of scratch your head a little bit and you're like, okay, well, you know, these are obviously competent people, right? Like, you know, it's hard to get into a position of power in the world, right? Like there's this, you know, game where you have to beat other people. Now, maybe you're optimizing for the wrong qualities or skills in a person, right? Um, but it's not easy to become, you know, the uh, head of the CFTC, right? Or, you know, the head of the SEC. Like, that's not an easy thing. You can't just turn up and be like, hey, I'm Jimmy, and I'm going to run this place, right? Um, you know, it takes a, a lot of work and time and effort. And, and um, So then you go, okay, well, like, these are obviously competent people. They're obviously intelligent people. Where is the misalignment of incentive? And I think the answer is that they are, you know, to go back to this like pessimism thing, they're skewed, maybe pessimistic, right? They're like, we have a solution to this problem, right? The solution is oversight. That's, that's the solution, right? Like we don't need to remove the need for oversight. We've got oversight. Look at rules and we've got rules and we've got people that can go in and look at your, you know, manila folders and go through them and highlight them and you know, figure it out. It takes 10 years and it's, you know, slow and clunky and allow for a bunch of fraud, but we've got that system, right? And they're just pessimistic at a fundamental level that you can solve this with technology. That like oversight can be like, you know, removed as a necessity because you can have things that are like transparent by default. So I think if you talk to Gensler, he would just say like, you know, you're, you're, this is like a, a kind of misdirection where you're building something that, won't give us this thing because there's a fundamental level of pessimism that you're not going to get this oversight. And you, and by saying you're going to give people oversight, you're finding a way to like kind of skirt around our oversight, which is the only way that the world can be sure that this thing works. Right? Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think, you know, everyone in crypto, or at least a lot of us in crypto who believe in the technology and understand, you know, why it's a better solution to this coordination problem of, of, you know, you either need oversight or you need transparency. I think we believe that the world will get this eventually, right? Like, this mm -hmm. is not like, like, we will win this argument. But at the moment, unfortunately, the people you're you're trying to convince are people that have been playing this game of I want to be the head of the SEC for who knows thirty years, right? And they, the, like the start of that career of I want to be the head of the SEC, there's no such thing as transparency, mm -hmm. right? Like everyone's no. a bad actor, and you got to have oversight and whatever. So like that guy needs to die basically, right? Before mm -hmm. you know, this is like the structure of scientific revolutions, right? Like this idea that like the people who are in charge now grew up in a paradigm that just doesn't comprehend what we're trying to do. And, you know, when all of the regulators, you know, who are 70, 80 years old, you know, take the bucket, then, you know, some new person turns up who knew that crypto was a thing the whole time and, and they get it. And they're like, oh, okay, this is how Innovation happens one death at a time, yeah. right? So, well, that, yeah. That's such a good point. I, I feel like regulators by default are pessimistic because, yeah, I know non-transparent financial system, but like you have to kind of assume everyone's like evil. Uh, brings me back to something you said earlier about efficiency, that ultimately consumers value efficiency in the market sort of like that's how you win the market. Do you think that we'll, we're undergoing sort of a paradigm shift with this bank runs that for now people kind of really wake up to this idea of like, oh, I actually now understand what happens when I deposit into a bank and then that eventually, no? no? no Do you think, no. That, is that too optimistic? <laughs> you know, this is... This is where I'm pessimistic, right? Like I'm pessimistic that the average person, that we're going to be able to educate everyone into caring enough about what we care about, right? Um, that they will be like, oh, I get now why this is a good thing, right? right. Like, you know, there's a, there's a battle in the market and the battle in the market is like, you need to be the most efficient. You need to be, uh, you know, the, the cheapest, best solution or whatever. You need to be 10x better than the incumbent and then people will use you people are never going to care how you did that. Like a small group of enthusiasts will care. The average person doesn't care. Um, and so, you know, people right now are all caught up about bank runs, you know, and in two weeks time, it'll be, you know, whatever, some other Something else. Okay, so Kane, what will yeah. make DeFi a 10x better, better experience than opening up a Robinhood app and trading? So this is, this is something where I think we in crypto, including myself, were overly optimistic about. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I tweeted about this a little while ago that like, if you want to, uh, decentralize the NASDAQ, um, doing it as this like guerrilla warfare is just not going to work. Right. I think we kind of thought, I kind of thought like maybe it's worth, it's worth a try. Right. Like, let's see if maybe we can like go and decentralize the NASDAQ without them noticing. Right. Um, I just don't think that's a thing really. Um, I think that what we need to do is decentralize the things that we can and show that the, the delta between the things that we can decentralize and the stuff that's not decentralized. And, you know, this has kind of crept into the zeitgeist a little bit. There are people like, that, wait a second, do we really need to shut off trading, you know, uh, every day? Like, what if we had continuous trading? Or, like, do we really need, like, three-day settlement? What if we had one-day settlement? So, like, when you, when you put some market pressure on something, all of a sudden people are like, oh, actually, maybe there is a better way of doing it, right? Uh, it's going to take a while, I think, decentralize the nasdaq but i think we can get efficient decentralized trading of all of the crypto assets like let's solve that problem first and then we can start talking about equities and things like that 
I want to get your take on stable coins. I know synthetics has its own SUSD. It's been around for a while. And that feels like the Achilles heel here of DeFi. Like talk about efficiency. Like people don't care. They'll just use Tether and USDC because they work right and they have the best liquidity. What's your vision for stable coins? You know, there is a theory out there, right? That um, was kind of, I think probably Arthur Hayes was, was the first one to espouse this, that like there is a better decentralized stable coin than what we've got now, right? Um, which is basically this like baseless trade, perpetual future backed, uh, you know, Bitcoin, I mean, in this case, Bitcoin, right? He still hasn't quite cut off the Bitcoin maxi train yet, but, you know, we'll get him there eventually. Um, and he's slowly, slowly, uh, slowly migrating uh, to the promised land. Uh, but, you know, the idea is like, okay, use this, this you know, asset and, and it's the most deeply liquid 24-7 market and like basically construct a stable coin that uses that as its backing. Uh, there's a couple of issues with that, right? One is that, you know, Bitcoin isn't natively on the Ethereum blockchain and obviously the stablecoin needs to be on the Ethereum blockchain. So you've got a couple of, you know, issues there. So I think his solution is like you go and look at like centralized exchanges, et cetera. Like, again, he's not quite, you know, like we can't be looking at centralized exchanges as a way to build a decentralized stablecoin, right? So the the alternative is, okay, we'll get ETH perpetual futures, right? Perpetual futures that are running on decentralized exchanges on ETH natively and use them as the underlying collateral, have this like basis trade. That to me makes a lot more sense. We're not quite there yet. We're getting close. Now, whether that will even work is kind of an open question. Like, is it even a thing that's viable? Like, but it, it may be, and we have the technology to test it now. I think we're getting close to being able to test it. Um, I think one of the other potential avenues um, is, uh, you know, like just a central bank digital currency comes along, right? Um, maybe for, you know, um, uh, like Australia is even playing around with this, right? So like, it's, you know, I've even like kind of thought about like, okay, what if you use something like that? Which kind of, you know, it's not, Australia's not as neutral as say like Switzerland, but, you know, if it was like, um, you know, uh, a CBDC launch, you know, for CHF or whatever, but like, um, you could potentially use that as a way of, uh, collateralizing something, you know, provided that like the, the issuer was credibly neutral and it's like backed by a central bank. Cause like fundamentally, you know, what do people want? What are people worried about now on their stable coins? They're worried about like how safe is the collateral, right? And, you know, a, a central bank digital currency. It's fairly safe. It's certainly safer than the, where the money is with Tether or Circle, right? Um, right now, you would say, you know, because um, uh, yeah. it's, it's issued by a central bank, right? Like it's narrow banking with central bank. Like I think the U.S. isn't quite there yet, but like it's possible that you know some some smaller nations that are still in the G20 or whatever could start playing around with this stuff, and that could end up being like pretty useful collateral. So there's there's still experiments to be run here on like how do we collateralize a stablecoin. Santi, I, w I know you have a couple other questions. Kane, I oh, want to no, get your take on, I saw you tweet out about uh, why FTX is the greatest thing for DeFi. So I don't know if you, and mm. like you mentioned this, these two words, centralized insanity earlier. I don't know if you covered all, yeah. all the all the things you wanted to mention earlier, but I did just want to dig into that a little more with you. Well, I think there's two things, right? You know, every cycle, uh, people, again, this is default pessimism, right? People are like, well, no one's going to be able to you know, supplant 
X, like Polonia X, right? Yeah. Like in you know, 2016 or whatever, right? Like people like Polo's like dominant and, you know, okay, Coinbase has like the US market or blah, 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 blah right? Um, and then it was like, you know, and then Binance kind of came and, and destroyed everyone, right? And people were like, how is that possible that Binance in like 11 months or whatever could become the dominant exchange? It's like, well, they just listed every shitcoin, right? Like, that's a very obvious playbook, right? Like, they did things that no one else is willing to do and, you know, that people want to trade and they'll go, you know, they'll eventually migrate to the place which is letting them trade, you know, the stuff that they want to be able to trade. Um, but then I remember, like, vividly in, in 2018, people were like, well, that's the last time that anyone could ever supplant, you know, like, uh, become the biggest exchange. Like, Binance is it and it will be to the end of time, right? And then, you know, this, like, scrappy little uh ftx thing pops up right and people are like huh okay now they've got like perpetual futures and they've got all this stuff and you know they started like taking on like a whole bunch of things right and gave people leverage or whatever now you know who knows how much of the customer acquisition costs were like you know <laughs> subsidized by the customer's own money well we may never know the answer to that right like you know if you're just losing money constantly to people like they're probably going to migrate to your exchange because everyone's gonna be like this is the greatest place to trade ever right so you know we don't really know how much alameda just you know, hemorrhaging money to all the traders on ftx was was a driver of growth um but the reality is that we are now in a situation where there isn't really a dominant exchange. Like there's Binance, right? But I mean, you know, Binance has got their own problems, right? Uh, but Binance has already been beaten by the last guy, but then the last guy blew up. And so now it's like, well, we know Binance can be beaten, right? So then it's a question of like, who can beat Binance? Is it going to be a centralized exchange? Well, maybe Binance can be beaten by a decentralized exchange or a group of decentralized exchanges. Or, or by the regulator. That, <laughs> or by the regulator or by combination. Um, sorry, I was speaking of that, what do you think of base? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I think base is, is interesting. You know, when we talk about ecosystems, right, we're going to have an ecosystem of all twos, right? And base will be in that ecosystem now, right? And base has a lot of, just to be clear, like Coinbase is L2 that's that based on the OP stack, right? right? Um, like they, they've got a lot of customers, right? You know, they just do. Um, so, uh, you know, um, taking the best tech stack, arguably, right, um, for an L2 and jamming a bunch of customers in there is definitely a playbook that, you know, could work really effectively, right? Mm -hmm. um, then it's a question, you know, I guess from the optimism side of like, how effective is the super chain concept of like a chain of chains where, you know, everything kind of, Falls down. Obviously, you know, Bates talked about not launching their own token. Um, you know, we've heard that story a million times. Themselves. Uh, let's see if it, mm -hmm. Themselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, um, so I think we need to take that with a grain of salt on some level. Um, but, you know, because I still believe that, you know, absent a token, it's hard to coordinate something in a decentralized way. And, you know, Coinbase may not have figured that out yet, but whatever, right? Like, you know, it'll, we'll see what happens there. Um, and so, you know, you now have like three or four different uh, L2s, right? And then, you know, there's ZK stuff that's coming around. Like there's a whole bunch of things that are ready to accommodate a lot of customers. And one of them already has a bunch of customers. It is the, the most, you know, kind of viable customer acquisition strategy to just transfer them from your old tech to your new tech, mm -hmm. right? Without, you know, hopefully you don't lose too many of them on the way over. Yeah. Do you think that, 
something like that is what sparks the next bull run as compound liquidity mining program did for DeFi summer? It certainly seems like it could be, uh, you know, of all the things that could spark that, right. Um, you know, just dumping whatever, you know, tens of millions of customers into an L2 and being like, Hey, look at this thing. Isn't this cool? Right. You know, um, I think that that could work, but to go back to, to, you know, the earlier question about like infrastructure, right. Um, that only works if you've got like solid wallet infrastructure and, you know, ease of use of like all these different things, like, and, you know, um, you know, socialized recovery and, and now maybe base because it comes from a centralized place and it's got KYC and has customer information. Like maybe there'll be some way that can like be a hybrid, you know, certainly a hybrid centralized, decentralized network, right. Has some advantages. So that would be a C, right. Um, you know, so base will have some advantages, I would say, right. That, you know, it's got, it's got user information. It's got some stuff that it can do. Um, so it's going to be a very interesting experiment. Mm. For sure. Okay. And last time you were on empire six months ago, um, we, we started the conversation by talking about like in, in, in each cycle, there's a different metric that people care about. So in 2017, the metric was, um, amount of money that you raised in 2020, it was TVL and your thesis at least six, seven months ago was in the next cycle, it'll be cash flow that the protocol is actually spitting off. What, what do you still think that seven months later? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, that's only been vetted down more, right? Like yeah. you look at, um, you know, we had crypto fees back then. DeFi, Llama now has, you know, their own version of that. There's other people that are building it. I do think that like DeFi, DeFi Llama, you know, started as like a, a, you know, sort of competitor to DeFi Pulse, right? Which was a TVL dashboard. I do think a dashboard that just focuses on that one metric, you know, is kind of a shelling point and people kind of go to it. And now we're in this weird thing where there's crypto fees, but DeFi Llama is better. Um, it's obviously a harder thing to track than just TBL. Like TBL, you just look at, you know, do a contract call and it's just there, right? Um, so there's some nuance about how you count things. So um, it's not as easy. It's a little bit, a little bit more of a sophisticated metric. Um, uh, but I do think that people are coming around this idea and, and sort of seeing it as a, a place to compete. Yeah. Do you th do you ever think about optimizing? Like when you are when you and the team and community are building synthetics, and folks are building on top. Like how much does that sort of belief about what folks will value in the future dictate how you build the product? I think that revenue is the real metric, right? This is the difference. Like this is where we're kind of getting to a point where like it's no longer nonsense, right? Like TBL was kind of nonsensical, right? right? But it was the only thing we could track. There wasn't anything else to track. Now it's like, well, we can track revenue. Like that's the end game, right? You need to be able to generate revenue, but until you can, generate revenue when no one's generating revenue just like come up with other metrics to compete with each other right but now it's like no like if you hold this token you get this revenue how do you think about um, yeah yeah go ahead that's it I, I was gonna say i mean as someone who thinks about like a blockworks building dashboards that could track fees and things like that like one thing that we're talking about internally is um you know not all revenue is treated equally just like not all tvl is tr uh, treated equally so like let's like yeah. using a uh, uniswap revenue for example like do you count all of Uniswap's revenue? Do you only count revenue that they eventually probably set, send back to to token holders, like like or back to the back to the protocol? Like, how do you think about revenue across you know different protocols, and different projects? This is where I think you know the nuance comes in, right? Because yeah. it's real, right? You don't need nuance when it's a nonsensical game that everyone's playing against right. each other, right? Like, and even within TBL, there's a little bit of 
but really it was just like how many assets are in there right you know maybe there was like take out the cut the the token um you know the internal token of the project like carve that out maybe that was the only carve out of like oh well let's not count the, the project's token let's only count like ETH. but that didn't even really work that well right like i remember d5 pulse had like a just show me like the eighth amount that's locked and everyone's like ah oh, fuck i don't care about that i want to see the top line number right like that's 10 billion or whatever. So um, this is a much more nuanced question and it'll be up to the dashboards, I guess, probably to set those expectations, right? And try and be, be neutral. Um, and again, it's now like a market problem, right? Like if one of the dashboards makes a bad decision and starts tracking something that's really gameable and everyone games it and they don't bother to try and fix that, then someone else will probably pop up and be like, well, I'm going to carve out that gamed metric because this is showing the wrong thing and then now you got some competition um but you know competition in crypto is still hideously inefficient right so how long does that take before someone steps up and says well wait a second no this is not right you know let's let's fix this um it could take a while i mean this sort of assumes that you know people even care or are valuing these things on cash flow like i mean it took like 100 years to develop formal valuation methodologies for stocks it's probably crazy to think that crypto is trading on any substance of fundamentals. But even in traditional capital markets, like outside of crypto, we, 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 we're we on the other side of this big VC bubble bursting. And folks, even if you look at the those kind of very hyped up venture back tech companies, the Ubers and Lyfts of the world, they are, you know, if you look at their what their board is telling them to do, they're telling them to, to race towards profitability too. I don't think it's just a crypto thing. No. So Sorry, just... To be clear, I think to, to um, Sandy's point, and this is, I think it's not like we're going to value these things on cash flow. We're going to pick winners based on cash flow and revenue, right? The, yeah. you know, the price to earnings is going to be <laughs> like nonsensical, right? Like there's no question there, right? It's, you know, it's going to be like a thousand X versus, you know, 950 X or something like that, right? You know, um, PE. So, um, or, or, you know, price to sales, depending on how you want it, whatever, right? But like, you know, it's going to be the winners will be determined by who has the most, you know, uh, revenue, right? And that's where yeah. there is nuance because Uniswap has the most revenue or did for a while, right? Had the most revenue of, uh, of a DeFi protocol, right? Um, I think, it, you know, there's some argument about like OP, where does that fit in the network? Mm -hmm. But, you know, Uniswap for a long time, but it has zero revenue for token holders, right? right? So do you show zero or do you show $3 million a day or whatever, mm -hmm. you know, like which one is it? And feel free to answer this question or not, but do you think that we've been in this, like specifically on the uni token, like fee switch or not? It's been heavily discussed among particularly large holders, which are venture back, like our, our VCs based in the US. Turning on a fee has implications that a crypto lawyer might say, wait a minute, that might then look like a security, which has always been like this problem in crypto. We we have done a lot of architectural choices and trade-offs because of this security thing. I'm curious to get your opinion on, on, on that. Scenario one, we continue on this path. At some point, we get some regulatory pol policy, whatnot. Um, or option B, we get clarity, say all of these things are securities. You got to register. You got to do information disclosures. Is that scenario terribly bad where crypto no longer becomes a viable thing like a lot of startups just die because token issuers like just can't issue a token because it's heavily problematic i think there's an option c right which is that you know for the foreseeable future regulators do not 
provide clarity, right? Um, but also say, you know, I mean, they are already kind of providing clarity. They're saying like, you should all register, right? Yet no one's, you know, scrambling to register, right? Um, and the reason why, not because everyone's sitting here saying, no, you know, we are securities, we're just, you know, thumbing our nose at the law and saying we're not going to register. It's because there's a fundamental ideological disagreement about what these things are, right? Um, and then there's a question of like, okay, so who registers? In the case of synthetics, there's no entities, right? There's a DAO, token holders, vote people in, like, you know, the synthetics governance is one of the most decentralized governance frameworks that exist, right? Like, it's not even governance theater. Like, there's still components which are a bit centralized in terms of, like, deployments and stuff, but in terms of how decisions are made, uh, it's, it's about as decentralized as you can get. And so the question is, like, who registers? Who even can decide to register? Um, you know, what does that even look like? And, until, and I, I, I think, you know, the onus is kind of on the regulator to say, if there is a thing that looks like this, and we're saying register, and it is fundamentally incompatible with the thing, something's broken here. Like, you need to, like, come up with a new definition or a new, you know, pathway for that thing to do the thing that you want it to do, right? There's no entity, there's no corporation, you know, in Delaware that's saying, yep, it's us, we're going to register this thing and, and, you know, it's our efforts that are generating, you know, profit for, you know, token holders or whatever. Like that doesn't exist in a lot of these. It does in some cases, but it doesn't in a lot of cases. And so I think that that could, if, if that really, you know, starts to accelerate, which I think it is, right? It pushes people more towards option C, which is look more like a thing that doesn't have the ability to register than look like a thing that's refusing to register in spite of the, the pressure. Okay, and as we think about the next bull market, can we just tie this all back to synthetics, actually? So you guys have, um, I mean, I think Santi and I have both, I mean, Santi even more intimately, but like we've watched your um, evolution from like this application that started with a focus on spot uh, synthetics and then now is really like this infrastructure liquidity layer. And we've, uh, Blockworks folks have gotten pretty close to like uh, Quenta and Lyra and uh, D-Hedge and all, and all these folks who have leveraged what you guys have built and have built these really successful uh, applications on top. What is the, can you talk about V3 a little bit? And I've got this Dune dashboard up called Synthetic Stack, uh, Synthetics Stats. And the numbers are just ripping, right? There's like 100 million on March 9th, 500 million on March 17th. I don't know if this is tied in at all with like the banking crisis, but the number, or maybe it's just with the you know, new launch of V3 and stuff like that, but of uh, V2, but anyways, tell me, tell me about V3 and what's coming. Yeah. So there's, there's kind of like versions and versions and synthetics yeah, yeah. like Ethereum probably doesn't do a great job of, uh, of, you know, version versioning or like calling <laughs> things what they are or whatever, you know, it's all a bit uh, confusing and, um, and, and convoluted, but um, we have the perps product uh, version one of which was pretty useless. Right. Um, which I will put my hand up and say, you know, I had a lot of, uh, say in, in how that was designed. And then we have V2, which is actually quite useful and kind of does the thing that it's supposed to do, um, which is launched recently. Um, but, but Perps V2 is just a product that built on the synthetics liquidity engine, if you will. Right. Um, you know, it's just an internal product that's, that's developed in the same way that like Lyra taps into synthetics liquidity or, you know, whoever, right. Um, you know, they like all of these different things, like. It's just a thing that was built by synthetics to tap into the liquidity. Um, and that's the old liquidity, right? Like that's the, the existing synthetic system that's been around since, you know, late 2018 or, or whatever. Um, 
Synthetics V3 is basically a complete redesign of that liquidity engine. And that redesign will allow for all of these projects that are already pulling that liquidity to do it much more efficiently. There's a whole bunch of advantages. There's, you know, so um, it's, it's a reimagining of how a liquidity layer could function, right? Now, alongside that, there's going to be improvements to the Perps product, which again, is just a product that's bolted onto that liquidity layer. Like they're, they're kind of independent. Someone could turn up tomorrow, really, um, and build their own implementation of Perps, right? And bolt it onto the liquidity layer because it's permissionless, right? Um, and in fact, I expect that something like that may happen, right? But from the synthetics token holders perspective, that's great. Like what you want is more things bolting onto this liquidity layer because the liquidity layer um, is what is uh, you know, generating the fees, right? That's the the thing that, that you know charges for access to itself, right? Um, and synthetics holders are the ones that back that, and they're the ones that you know, get the benefit from it. Nice. What's the toughest part about this? Getting folks to build on top or getting the traders? Um, I think, you know, historically it's been getting a product that works, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you know, we've had multiple iterations that just didn't work or had like significant flaws. And so when you, when you have a product that has flaws, typically what we found, I think, is in practice, the flaws mean that it can't scale. Right. Like that's what I think, you know, like you can kind of do it for a while and it works. And, you know, until someone notices the flaw and they really try and like scale it up and they start exploiting it, you know, so like Oracle latency was a thing that, you know, Oracle latency existed for years. Right. And we all just kind of like looked the other way and just, you know, used it or whatever. And then, you know, one day someone turned up and they're like, Hey, I can maybe exploit this Oracle latency. And then, you know, yeah, a whole bunch of bad things that happened. Right. In, in like you know, July 2019 or whatever. Um, you know, and, and kind of kept happening, right? And we've seen Oracle latency exploded in multiple protocols. Um, and so then you go, okay, well, now we're going to, you know, change the way the Oracles work or whatever. So, like, there's this iterative game of, like, you do a thing and there's some, you know, inefficiencies and then people start exploiting those inefficiencies and then you fix them and then mm -hmm. you go and fix a different yeah. part of it. So we're at a point now where I think we've fixed a lot of the inefficiencies and, and you know, Oracle latency isn't an issue, um, you know, uh, probably the, the biggest issue for synthetics right now, I would say, is like liquidity is an issue. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't have sufficient liquidity, you know, 50 million SUSD and, and I think 100 million total since is not enough to be the dominant, um, you know, perp trading venue for the yeah. world, right? Like we need to scale up significantly. Have you guys ever thought about launching your own chain? After looking at like what DYDX is doing, local fee markets, capture the MEV, try to get closer to the user. Is that on your roadmap at all? Um, we definitely thought about it. You know, yeah. there was that, you know, the parachain thing, right. you know, like I was, I was at, um, you know, uh, a talk that, um, you know, I think when Polkadot launched or so around about the time, you know, when Gavin was launching Polkadot and it was like, okay, parachains is interesting. Now it hasn't gone anywhere for whatever, for a number of reasons, right? Um, the biggest downside to an app chain in my mind is composability, right? People really did not understand the value of composability. I think even early DeFi people didn't really understand the value of composability, right? Um, you know, it's, it turns out it's significantly more valuable than it even seems like it should be on paper. And I think we valued it highly, but just not as highly as we should have. And so the question for, I guess, you know, optimism, for example, with the super chain idea, right? And, you know, with base and maybe other chains that are like connected to the super chain is how do we ensure composability? Or how do we, how do we kind of get something that's close or approximates composability? 
Because if you break composability, what we've seen is that is a significant impediment to, to you know, utility for users. For someone listening who doesn't understand why composability is so important, what what is that? Why? So, so um, if you the interesting thing, and I, I said this about DYDX, right? Like DYDX was had the luxury of actually camping out and building their own little silo, right? It was almost like a decentralized, centralized thing, right? Um, you know, it was like DC fi or something like that, right? Instead of CD fi or whatever. Um, and it was like, well, we're decentralized, we're non-custodial, but we're running on a computer in someone's house, right? Um, and the you know, worst case is if someone shuts down the computer, like you can get your funds out. You know, it'll take a while. You got to send a letter to the house and then, that, you know, whatever, right? It was this whole convoluted scheme. No one knew how to, like, write the language of the letter. But just ignore that for a second, right? But the idea was... No like, reply at dydx.com. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or no reply, like, you know, Starkware headquarters in Israel or whatever. Um, but anyway, so, like, the point, the point was that, like, we weren't controlling your funds, but we were controlling kind of every aspect of how the system operated. Right. Um, but they could do that because all people wanted out of DYDX was like fast trading. Right. They just wanted like deep liquidity, fast execution, um, you know, a, a lot of different options to trade. And, you know, so DYDX, interestingly, was like the kind of, you know, 2017 centralized exchange playbook of like, you know, only list 10 assets or whatever, but just be really like liquid. Or, and, you know, then someone else comes along, Binance, and says, well, why don't we have 100 assets, right? And people are like, well, actually, you have the 10 assets that I want to trade, but the other 90, and so you kind of migrate away, right? So that's like, it is just an interesting thing to think that like, they were kind of doing the centralized exchange playbook from like 2015, 2016, or whatever, of, like, be really deeply liquid. But they didn't need composability. Because you were just literally, you just wanted to trade, you wanted to go and trade the perps. That was it. Right. Whereas if you were, let's say, Aave, right, um, and you wanted to have a lending market, but people were doing weird stuff with like ETH and there was no way for them to like take their wrapped ETH derivative and put it into your protocol because you were off in your own silo, that's a huge impediment to growth. Right? That would have not really worked. Right. So DYDX had the luxury of kind of going and, and parking themselves in this little kind of centralized you know, app chain that they built, right? Because it didn't really diminish the utility, but for almost every other protocol, it, it would have because not being able to like move assets between and, and you know, create linkages and, and things like that, um, you know, wouldn't really have worked. Now, the interesting thing is that what I think we've realized now is the composability for a purpose exchange is actually valuable, but we didn't know because we didn't have one that had composability. And so we're seeing with synthetics that like, Synthetics having composability and being a liquid purpose exchange or GMX or whatever is actually beneficial because people start building stuff that feeds into that cross margining and other cool things that just couldn't exist on DYDX because you can't cross margin it because you're in your own silo. And so I think that like that is where we're seeing that like composability has value, uh, but you don't see it until you build cool stuff and, and it works. Mm -hmm. Would you say that that's one of the things that like composability in DeFi is, is, is a beautiful thing? flash loans and cross like it, it just the ability to innovate is is incredible but it feels like super early still like it, it requires a level of sophistication like you've seen the meme like you take this ass and like it, it, it's pretty like it's crazy to think but like i would say like it's limited to maybe a thousand users that are really kind of 
taking advantage of composability. Is this something that like you think over time will play up and really differentiate DeFi where maybe the aggregator, the wallet or the financial institutions really takes advantage because it's this whole, as you said, ecosystem that is being built on top of synthetics, but it's like too early and you're just sort of like building with like a very core set of crazy Spartans, which is by the way, historically been the case, hoping that one day, like all these kind of innovations come out of composability. So you can do DIY composability, which is cool, right? Like that was, you know, that was like DeFi summer. Yeah. Those people being like, oh, okay. Like I'm just going to build my own thing, aggregate stuff, whatever. Like, so that was, that's definitely a thing. And that's always available. And that's how the experiments happen, right? But if you look at composability, the best example, I think, still historically of composability is like InstaDAP. InstaDAP just said, hey, there's like an interest rate arbitrage between, you know, maker and compound and people want leverage and they don't care. You know, they just want the cheapest thing, right? And then one inch probably was then the next best example of like, people just want to trade and there's like 50 different places where liquidity is pooled, why don't we just put a layer on top of that and we can, you know, start and like that worked amazingly well. And now you have CalSwap and there's all kinds of stuff. So like, I think, you know, that initial uh, experimentation is like always kind of DIY. Like you just have to turn up and just test stuff out, but then you can systematize it over time. Like the InstaDAP guys built that in a hackathon and we're like, what if we could just, you know, click a button and go from compound to maker or maker to compound. And then they're mm -hmm. like, well, why don't we put an interface over that? And all of a sudden they had like, $5 billion of TBL or a billion dollars, something like that. Right. So, yeah. um, you know, people will systematize composability after the experiments demonstrate value or utility. Maybe for a skeptical listener that went through like kind of the global financial crisis might say, wait, wait a minute. I, I've, I've seen this movie before. Like you talk about efficiency. Great. Which I fundamentally think composability makes DeFi really efficient. Like these ARBs go like are exploited very quickly. And so it makes a more efficient system. The counter argument of that is, wait a minute, you built a really fragile house of cards here where as soon as you start piling up these Legos or Jenga tower, one brick goes down, shit hits the fan, everything goes down. What is your response to someone that like thinks that as, as he listens to you talk about composability? So I think that the difference is that the opacity, you know, all of the connectivity in the, in the GFC, right, between different things was... Uh, undermined on some level uh, or the risk of connectivity was exacerbated by the opacity of each of the things, right? Like you couldn't go in and infect the state of, you know, <laughs> now you're laughing, right? Uh, but like, so like, you know, in DeFi, if everything has its own risk management structure, right? Like if Maker has good risk management, good liquidation practices or whatever, it shouldn't matter what it's connected to. Right. Yeah. Like it should just have an efficient thing. Now there is an argument to be made that like if ETH is the reserve asset of all of these things and ETH goes to zero, well then they all go to zero. I don't think there's a way that you can like remove that. You know, oh, that's a system, more like, right? hypo like fundamental issue, a fundamental problem. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, in the same way that like if the dollar goes to zero, then yeah. like all banks, like you know, or yeah. whatever. If there's if there's fear, right? Like there's there are legitimate things that you just can't kind of avoid, right? But um, if every silo of liquidity has its own risk management practices that are transparent, and then you connect them, 
can bad things happen? 100%, mm-hmm. right? Is it much less risky than connecting a bunch of opaque, centralized things to each other? 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, was, I was laughing more so because you talked about Oracle problems in DeFi. I was just thinking of the scene in the big short where, like, they're looking mm-hmm. at the housing, like, bubble is bursting and, like, the CDS, like, the, the instrument that they were, like, using to short the housing hadn't moved. And it's like, guys, like, this is fraudulent. Like they're calling Goldman saying, yeah. guys, like update this thing. Like the housing crisis just like the housing bubble just burst and the yeah. index hadn't, hadn't moved. So anyway, it's like, it's just interesting. Well, yeah. Um, when the Oracle provider lives in one of those silos, right? Or like a couple of them. The like, provider, actually, no. <laughs> yeah. When they have a huge book that they need to offload. Yeah. They're going to delay the Oracle uh, for a bit. Yeah. No, yeah. you're absolutely right. Exactly. Um, I, I hope, uh, I mean, it's so great having you on because you, you have, uh, a very sober take, I think, but also optimistic one in many ways, a balanced view um, as someone that's been around for such a long time and you've had, gone through a few pivots. And um, I guess as we round out, I do want to just do a quick fire round questions, but I don't know if there's anything else you want to cover on the synthetics front or things that you're excited about generally that you're investing in recently uh, before we go to the fire round. No, I, I think, you know, fundamentally, uh, I'm excited that we now have the infrastructure that we've been looking for for a long time. Um, and I think the thing that shifted for me, in a, in, you know, you constantly, DeFi forces you to learn lessons. One of the lessons I've learned is that a single solution to a problem is actually not a viable marketplace, right? And, you know, this is probably the lesson from optimism, I would say, uh, is that in order to be a credible alternative uh, to the incumbents, you need like a an ecosystem of, of solutions, right? With different trade-offs. And, and uh, I think that that's where we're at now. Like there's uh, an ecosystem of L2s within the Ethereum ecosystem, a sub ecosystem of L2s that um, is viable. Um, the same thing is true of like wallet providers. I think we need like, we can't just have like a single, even though that would be the, the you know, um, optimal solution is just have like one wallet that does all the things and one L2 that does all the things. I, I just think that's not, realistic to expect um, and that it's better to have an ecosystem and that exists now. Um, and so I think we're in a position where, you know, if the market starts to rip up, you know, this year or next year or whatever, that we're going to be in a place where we can finally do what we've said we would be able to do, which is actually, you know, provide an experience that's better than a centralized exchange um, yeah. and not on some like, you know, metric that no one cares about, right? Like, Oh, no, we're not going to like, you know, fraudulently steal all your money. No one cares about that when the market's moving up. Like actually on the things that people care about. Like we've got better assets, we've got better liquidity, we've got better utility, we've got better, you know, whatever, uptime. Like we've got all these things that are actually the metrics people care about and not like, hey, we're worse in every way except we won't steal your money. Because it yeah. turns out people don't care about that. They'll on, give it to the guy who's going to steal their money. On the efficiency score, as you said. Yeah. Faster, better, cheaper. Exactly. All right, man. This has been great. Let's do a quick fire round. Um, cool. Five, six questions. Um, uh, what's been your worst trade? Uh, I sold um, several thousand ETH at about seven dollars um, in 2017. That was probably my worst trade. It's a pretty bad trade. <laughs> pretty bad trade. I feel the pain still. I had a good reason. I've been there. Not a good reason. In hindsight, it was not a good reason. Yeah. Well, but Alex told yeah. a ton at 18 and then went back to eight, nine. At, yeah. Good yeah. times. Yeah. Best trade. Yeah. Uh, my best trade is probably uh, sticking with us next. Nice. 
how many hours of sleep do you get now? And is it more or less than it was two years ago? Uh, it's a lot more. I used to sleep, you know, four or five hours a night. Um, now I try and get like seven or eight hours of sleep. Um, I've realized the value of sleep. Is that because your kids are getting older or just because, you know? It's probably a little bit, but also like I've made a like, concerted effort to get more sleep. Um, it's something that I, I you know, just didn't focus on. Nice. Can't help but notice a bunch of uh, really nice musical equipment back there. What's your uh, What's your favorite song? My favorite song. My favorite song of all time is probably uh, Diamond Sea by Sonic Youth. Nice. Um, and perhaps last two, what's, what's your best advice for someone that is in crypto or looking to get into crypto? Um, I think if you're looking to get into crypto, um, find something that excites you that people are uh, sort of pessimistic on, right? Like find, find, find a problem that you're excited by um, that you can you know, put some optimism towards um, that, you know, the, the consensus is like this is not a thing um, because oftentimes it is. And that's where the opportunities lie. That's awesome. Kane, thanks for coming on. Uh, always a treat having you. Um, and, and really appreciate the time. If anyone wants to learn more about what you're doing or what about synthetics, what, what are the best kind of ways to, to follow, to follow you? I mean, synthetics discord is always a fun place to hang out. Um, be careful going to the gen <laughs> trading, but you know, everyone else is pretty, pretty safe. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter, uh, uh, on my, my Twitter handle. We'll, we'll post that in the show notes. Yeah, cool. Awesome, sir. Okay. Thanks, Thanks so much. Sir. Yeah, appreciate you. Thanks, guys.